First of all, thank you for joining me on the Football CFB podcast, Adrian. It's my pleasure. I'd like to start, Adrian. You've obviously had an interesting career within football, working on the communications side, um, also working on the recruitment side over the years at different levels. What are you up to now? Well, I finished my work with Middlesbrough Football Club at the end of the year, so I'm currently in conversation with a number of different people doing some consultancy work, which is a continuation of uh, some of the things I did after leaving the FA. Uh, And I'm looking at other potential opportunities that uh, may arise either in football, sports, or um, more in the corporate world. So I've just taken a bit of time out, to be honest with you. Before we come to your career and where you really came to prominence for a lot of people when you were involved in the FA, I'm interested to ask you, in terms of growing up, Adrian, what kind of player were you? Where did you play growing up and uh, did you ever have a chance of making it as a professional? <laughs> well, we all had a chance, I guess. Um, now, I played to a reasonable level. I mean, football you know, was my, my passion throughout my um, childhood and early youth. Um, and particularly in my younger years, um, you know, I played, always played for representative teams, um, played for school teams that were successful and um, Sunday teams that were always successful. Played in a Middlesbrough schoolboys uh, group that um, actually went on to win the England schoolboys shield, by which point uh, I wasn't actually a member of the group. It was a very strong side that had international players in it. Um, and then I played men's football to... Um, you know, a relatively decent level, although I've got to say not to the same kind of standard that I'd enjoyed when I was when I was younger and had real aspirations of of making it, but these things don't you know, don't always run smoothly for most people, do they? That's true. And in terms of yourself as a even as a as a young footballer and as a fan grown up, who were your first sort of footballing heroes that you just loved watching every week? Yeah, well my first my Middlesbrough has always been my club. Uh, and I was also a massive England fan as well. Um, so, so you're looking at Middlesbrough had a really good side under Jack Charlton when I first started going. It was the, there were a team that had people like Graham Souness in there, um, David Armstrong, Bobby Murdoch, uh, David Mills, who was the first half billion pound player, Willie Madron, Stuart Bone, Jim Platt goal, very strong side. Uh, and then you had players come through that I watched a lot of the likes of Craig Johnston, who went on to Liverpool. A number of players from Middlesbrough, Middlesbrough team went on to play for Liverpool. Um, and I always loved Kevin Keegan. He was a real hero of mine, you know, during the, the late 70s period. Uh, and, you know, people like Glenn Hoddle as well. And, I, you know, also as you got a bit more aware of world football, I loved players like Roberto Bettiger, uh and then Michel Platini. But the Dutch side of the late 70s was probably the first iconic team that I fell in love with. You mentioned there you're a massive Middlesbrough fan and you grew up in, in Middlesbrough. What was do you remember the first sort of game you attended and what was that feeling like walking through the stadium for the first time? Yeah. Well, I, you know, being really honest with you, I was such a young child. I mean, because I, I, I can't ever remember not being obsessed with football. And I'm one of these people who's fortunate. I've got a very good memory. Um, the first game I ever went to was an Anglo-Scottish Cup tie, I believe. Um, which was against Mansfield at Ayrson Park. It was the year Middlesbrough went on to actually win it. Uh, I just remember, you know, I can remember the first times I went to Ayrson Park, the distinct smell as you walked up the to the back of the seats, opposite end of the cop end of Middlesbrough, which is the whole, which is the whole gate end at Ayrson Park. And you could smell like, you know, the old uh, sweet pipe tobacco and things like that that were in the air, the night games and things. And that, that kind of stands out to me. And then the, the noise of the tamai and the fans shouting for the first time, they're kind of distinct memories for me. When you mentioned there, obviously, your journey through football as, as, as a young budding footballer and, and as a football fan, when you weren't going to become a professional footballer and that realisation hits, as you say, pretty much most of us in the country because there's only a very small percentage that can make it, was it always your ambition to work within football in some capacity? Um, I can't, I'd be lying if I said it was. I mean, look, I'd have always loved to have, but I didn't have a firm game plan as such. I mean, I, I, I left school with minimal qualifications and I went to work at uh, ICI, the big industrial chemical company, which was huge on Teesside where I grew up. And, you know, I, I went on what was the old YTS schemes and I found my way 
into a placement on the company newspaper, which was CMP News, uh, based at ICI Wilton. And, and from there, things sort of morphed out. I had two great years there, learned a tremendous amount from very good people, uh, including Dave Allen, who went on to become uh, Middlesbrough's first <clears throat> you know, PR guy. And although I drifted out into some sort of more traditional local government work uh, for a few years, I kept my hand in writing for the, the club programme and uh, articles, occasional articles for 90 Minutes and Shoot Magazine and the like. And then when Middlesbrough, uh, when Steve Gibson took over the club and they, they formed a PR department just before they went off to build the, the Riverside Stadium and Brian Robson had come in as manager and uh, I found myself being approached to go and work for them and, and that was you know, that was a dr- genuinely a dream come true because even though not achieving what you always wanted to be as a footballer, it's kind of the next best thing, I guess, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, working in football, especially for me, is is something that I dream about every day, if I'm honest. And, and you've done that for, for many years. And your first role in football out with freelance writing as such was to be the senior publications and press officer at Middlesbrough. And you mentioned that being a dream come true for yourself. What did that role involve? Obviously, we hear the 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 word press officer um, at clubs quite a lot now. But as a fan, I think a lot of people wonder what that role necessarily involves. Could you just explain when you started in it in the nineties what it involved at that stage? Yeah, I think it was still quite a, a new role to be honest with you. Um, and we were we were learning. I think the reason that it had been created was, you know, the club at Middlesbrough at the time sort of went through a massive period of change where. You know, it had a few years back down in the, uh, the second division or the championship after being in the inaugural season of the Premier League. But Brian Robson, one of the biggest names in English football at the time, coming in as player manager, signing some big name players and building a new stadium, the first club um, of, of that stature to build a new stadium for many, many years. You know, the club started going in a direction where it started attracting more media. We signed players like Nick Barnby from uh, Tottenham for five and a half million pounds. Janinho, who's the Brazilian player of the year, uh, who just scored against England at Wembley. Uh, we brought in a guy called Emerson from uh, FC Porto, who was a big superstar for four million. And then Ravinelli came for seven million from Juventus after scoring in the Champions League final. So it was just an unbelievable period. We got to two cup finals. We got relegated in the same season. We had points deducted. Uh, just an unreal journey for two or three years. I was interviewing the players for the in-house publications. We were managing the uh, the, the, the land, you know, landline service. We called it for a live way, the kind of club call thing. Um, we were also liaising with the media um, for the traditional press conferences, pre and post-match and any other interviews, working with the commercial department, with uh, PR agencies around them, Selnet being our main main sponsor at the time, which was a very big deal within football at that moment. And uh, it was a big learning curve. You know, I'm not going to sit there and say, oh, we knew everything of how to do it all at that particular moment. We were found, you know, to be in the spotlight like never before. And it would be life for me to sit here and say, I, I knew how to deal with it. And suddenly we were dealing with a lot of national journalists that we hadn't before. Uh, agents and so forth, but it was just an unbelievable learning curve, really, and an un- an incredible experience. In terms of football, everyone who knows football throughout the years knows Brian Robson. He's a legend of football at Man United. Obviously, went on to to also played for England, an England legend as well as a club legend. And when he comes to Middlesbrough, what was he like to work with um, in terms of yourself? Yeah, I mean, look, I was quite a young guy at the time and very inexperienced. But I have to say, Brian was, and I think anyone who's ever experienced working with Brian or dealing with Brian would tell you that he's a man without any real ego. He's a really nice guy and he was incredibly helpful. He took his responsibilities, um, you know, really well, you know, writing the, the, the manager's column, attending the press conferences, being a really fantastic ambassador for the football club. He cared deeply for the club and he wanted the club to achieve success. And that's why, you know, working in harmony with the chief executive and the chairman, he was able to bring in the players that we brought in that for a club like Middlesbrough had never been able to achieve that sort of attraction before. In terms of, you mentioned that with Middlesbrough, 
you were inexperienced in that role at the time. It was one of your, your first roles working within the game. In terms of that, what was the biggest things that you learned over those couple of years at Middlesbrough? I think the big thing, and I've kind of held this through all the way through my career, is uh, I, I didn't want to be someone who was like the best mate of the player. Not because I didn't like the players, I wanted to be professional with them. And so, you know, we, we had some great guys in that dressing room, guys that have become friends in later life, like the Anagrafi Auto, the Norwegian international who does a lot of TV work now, uh, Craig Hignett, um, another one that I've, you know, stayed in a lot of contact with Alan Miller, the goalkeeper who was in that team who I've seen a lot of over the years. Different players. He's um, recently been in touch with Mark Schwartz who came in after Alan Miller, the goalkeeper. But my my purpose at that point, I was interviewing people like Gordon McQueen, obviously he was a very well-known great Scotland player. Um, he was our reserve team manager. Uh, David Geddes, who played for Ipswich in the FA Cup final in 1978. He was the uh, youth team coach. So I would interview there, those guys and all the reserves and the youth teams as well. And it was trying to get yourself in, ingrained in the whole club and support the whole club and be respectful to every member of staff, but also treat the players in a professional manner and not just be someone who was a, was, was starstruck, if that made sense. No, absolutely. And I think you're, you're totally right in the sense that you understand the, the approach that people have where they try and get really close to the players and develop that, that um, relationship. But as you've said as well, I think being professional in a, in a role behind the scenes is, is equally as important because as you've said at the end of the day, you're, you're paid to do a role. You're not paid, obviously, to, to just be everyone's best friend. And you mentioned the fact that you learned quite a lot during your time at Middlesbrough there in those first few years. You then get an incredible chance to work with the FA and how did that all come about? Did they approach Middlesbrough or did you seek that role? No, I, I, I applied for a role. I mean, back in those days, you know, the job was advertised in the Guardian media section for a media relations officer. And I applied for it and I'd never lived outside of Teesside before in my life. Uh, I was recently married. Uh, my wife worked, still had a full-time job in the area. Uh, and after a couple of interviews, uh, I, got, I got the job and that was with a very well-known uh, executive there, David Davis, former BBC broadcaster. Um, and I'm eternally grateful to the guys who employed me because it was an unbelievable opportunity. I'm someone who grew up, um, you know, I had England kits, I had England tracksuits. I used to be absolutely obsessed with following the England team closely from afar. Uh, and suddenly part of my job was to work with the England teams. Now, beyond that, I also made it, my, my role was to work very much with the youth teams, very much with the uh, development setup. I worked with people like Les Reed, with Howard Wilkinson, with Peter Taylor, uh, Kenny Swain, some really good uh, youth coaches in the structure. And with a lot of the young players when they were coming through, the likes of your Frank Lampards and Jamie Carragher's, um, Stephen Gerrard, a lot, I can name them, endless list of players. And I really enjoyed that, that work. And, just threw myself into it and also, you know, working with supporters club meetings around the country. I was doing them on a Friday night all over the place, different things. And it was just a privilege to be involved with it. And it's an organisation that often gets maligned, but it does so much great work as well. So I really enjoyed that, I've got to say. You eventually, after a few years working at the FA, you become the head of media and the director eventually is also the director of communications for the FA now. When you're in that sort of role, um, are you working a lot more closely with the manager of the senior men's team? Yes, you are. Um, but also, I think importantly, you're involved in a lot more of the wider business of the organisation as well. The further, uh, the, the further that you kind of go up in the organisation, because you know, I was group communications director for several years. You know, during that period. You liaison very closely with the chairman, the chief executive, but we were, you know, you're involved in promoting the national game, the amateur game, I should say. The, you know, you're working with the FA Council, with the board. You're working with, you know, suddenly they're building Wembley, they're building St George's Park. Now you not, might not be the direct point person on each of those projects, just to be a member of staff on the comms team, working with a lot of those things, promoting the cup competitions, promoting women's football, which has obviously been a huge development over that period of time Absolutely. as well. But your role is as the executive lead to make sure that the communication strategy is 
uh, being embraced and, and, and being you know followed through. Um, and within that, of course, a huge focus is always understandably on the men's senior team. And so therefore, you know, your relationship with the, the, the senior team manager or head coach is very important. And I was fortunate to enjoy, you know, some really strong relationships with a number of those guys that, that I still, you know, enjoy, you know, to this day, particularly people like Sven Jorin Eriksson. In terms of Sven Jorin Eriksson, I was going to come on to, to him next. Obviously, he was the the England manager throughout your time there that had one of the, or arguably, if not actually, the longest spell in charge. And in terms of the relationship with Sven, in terms of press conferences, <clears> obviously, you've got journalists coming from multiple media outlets whether that be international outlets, national outlets, and obviously some regional outlets. When it comes to a press conference situation, Adrian, when you're a director of communications, do you sort of spend time before a press conference briefing the manager on what could be discussed? Or is it more just a case of going along to the press conference with the manager? And I don't mean keeping them right as if they can't keep themselves right, but I just mean keeping a wee close eye on proceedings and questions that are coming in. I think it's really important that if you're doing your job properly, and it depends on the individual, whether it be the manager or whether it be a senior chairman or executive, you know, within the business, um, you have a responsibility to ensure that they're properly prepared. So we would always, for every press conference with any manager, it wouldn't just be me, there would be um, other people within the comms team. And I was very fortunate to work with a number of very professional people who had also gone on to work um, very successfully for other organisations after moving on from the FA, but we would always have a thorough Q&A prepared for for the manager, particularly that they should never really get hit with any questions that they're not really prepared for. It does occasionally, obviously, happen. Yeah. Um, but you then, you're also faced with some unusual circumstances when you're working for an, a high-profile organisation like the English FA. You know, there are things, whether it be, obviously, with Sven, there's a lot of issues around his private life, but there are always political things that can occur that may be related or unrelated to football. And sometimes, you know, you might be working to a directive from higher up, higher up the organisation that it's, it's not something that can be discussed. It might be a legal issue that can't be discussed for whatever reason. And you have to make sure that even though it's not going to please the media on certain occasions, you have to hold your ground for the, for, for the organisation that you're working for. Now, I was fortunate that over the whole period I was in that role with, with, with the English FA that um, I enjoyed generally a fantastic relationship with the media. I enjoyed dealing with them. Um, and I was always someone I felt that, that talked talk to them rather than blocked them all of the time. I think they felt they could ask me questions and I would always give them, I would always be um, honest with them or certainly act with integrity. So that relationship wasn't wasn't a problem, but obviously the, the, there was just some huge issues that we had to deal with at times that are very difficult to manage, so to speak. You mentioned the fact that obviously with the with the English FA and in such a high profile organisation with high profile employees, that political issues or private life issues can come up very quickly. In terms of your working hours when you're in a job as director of communications, are you basically just on call twenty four seven in case anything breaks? I think if I'm being honest with you. <clears throat> Yeah, I would I would say um, I genuinely think that for a ten year period I was pretty much on call twenty four seven. Yes, and you know it's it's a very demanding environment to work in. It's also uh, an environment that you have an unbelievable adrenaline rush when you work in it as well. Um, it's amazing how that adrenaline kicks in even when you are um, you know knackered at times. Quite frankly. Um, but yeah, it's 24/7, and you, the, the, the industry's changed dramatically during that period. When I first started as a at the FA, obviously not as director of commerce, but you know we didn't really have a fully operational website. We, we 24-hour sports news on Sky didn't exist at that time, and we certainly didn't have social media. So there's been dramatic changes during that period, and during that time, we've obviously. I've seen the demands on people working in the comms industry um, to grow and grow. In terms of that time, obviously you worked with the English FA and the English national team when they had so many high-profile players and and such a high-profile coach and Sven Joran Eriksson in in, in the main era when you were director of communications. In terms of those guys at obviously the elite level of sport, 
from the outside looking at them as fans and, and, and obviously journalists looking at them from the outside looking in, I think a lot of the time we forget that they are human. We see them as this name and this ego and, and I think we forget there's a human behind the caricature that we get to see from the outside looking in. What were the players like? Gerard, Lampard, Scholes, Beckham, obviously Ericsson. What were they like as people to work alongside? Well, they're all they're all very different. I've got to say, I got to know the managers a lot more than the players. I'm being honest with you because you're working when you were the national setup. You're working with the managers on a more consistent basis than with the players. Some players you get to know better than others. Just human nature, I guess, um, determines that. And obviously, certain people within the organisation get to know certain players better than others just by by natural chemistry. Um, but you know, I've got I've got to say that in the main, the players were. Fantastic to deal with, and that was at a period. It, it it seems a little bit different now to that kind of period where we had that sort of six years under Ericsson, where we had the team that was labelled the golden generation, uh, which didn't help anybody. But there was, you know, an expectation. There was an intensity. Um, there was a lot of um, big superstars within that team, as far as brands and everything. It was, it, it was, it, there was a lot of demands around it. But you know. David Beckham as the captain was a was and is a really nice person to deal with. You know, he's 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 a quiet person, he takes his responsibilities very seriously, and he was a pleasure to work with. You know, you've got people like Rio Ferdinand who always fronted up, um you got Frank Lampard and Stephen Gerrard, who as I say I worked with from a very young age, they 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 were always uh, very professional to deal with. Michael Owen, another player that was consistent through that period to deal with, and you know, I can list the list is there for all to see. There were some great players. I saw the emergence of Wayne Rooney um, as a you know a really young boy, quite frankly, who you know never did any big press activity before, and suddenly thrust into things at the European Championships in 2004 and becoming a global superstar overnight. So things are transformational. Living within the bubble of the microscope of being around the England team, I think, you know, what I would say is comparing it to now, uh, in Gareth Southgate, someone who I work closely with as a player and I've known for many, many years, uh, you've got someone who is very understanding of the the role of the media, the media landscape, and I think he's been fantastic in how he's managed it. Absolutely. As you say, the landscape has completely changed and, and Gareth now, obviously, his manager's got to put up, obviously, with social media, with even more breaking news than, than as we talked about earlier, was available when you just started in the role. Is what Be honest, Adrian, is the hardest thing as Director of Communications working, working, I suppose, with, and I don't mean against in a negative way, but working, obviously, in relation with the press? Because, obviously... The England team gathers headlines no matter what because obviously it's just such an iconic brand, it's such an iconic team. Is it hard as Director of Communications to have to speak with members of the media when certain articles are being put out that maybe are very negative considering it's the nation that, that they are from? I think, look, it depends on the different nature of a story at a given time and what you're dealing with and also depending on your relationship with individual journalists or or media outlets I mean look, as I say in the main I enjoyed really good relations with the, with the media but there were moments in time where you know certain managers were on the receiving end of players on the receiving end of some significant um, criticism often very harsh and unfair or mocking um, and you have to do your job seriously then because everyone internally is looking at, looking at what you're going to do as well. So, you know, there's a, it's, it's a very fine balancing act and the preference is not to be involved in rows. But I've got to say back in the, back in certain days, you know, there was a need to be a lot more combative in your approach with, with, with some, some, some individuals or some, some outlets. And I wouldn't say it's particularly enjoyable side of the job, but I could be that person. Uh, depending on the circumstance. But there are a number of those people that I've had some pretty serious rounds with at different points, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, who are people who are still considered to be friends now. So, you know, you're doing a job and you've got to do your job very, very seriously. That is your responsibility. And you've got a responsibility to best represent anybody that you're working with, whether that be the, you know, the chairman, the CEO, the board, the England teams, 
the England coaches that you work with or your colleagues. You've got a responsibility and you have to, sometimes you have to take take things forward. You're also at times, not massively, but at times you're working with law, with your, with your legal advisors because sometimes the legal side of it had to step in because of the nature of some of the things we were dealing with. One of the big challenges, I, I imagine, obviously from the outside looking in, is when Sven announces he's leaving and as a director of communications, as a, as a head of media, is it is that the hardest challenge for you when you're involved in behind the scenes at an organisation like the FA or a club when there is a change of manager? Because obviously, as soon as the manager announces he's going, the speculation just ramps up out of control. Is that probably yeah, the most challenging role? I don't think, no, I don't think... I, I wouldn't necessarily say that's always the hardest. It's definitely one of the more demanding because the level of interest and people want to be first with who it's going to be. And if it's a long process, it can be demanding. And you know, there were times, I mean, look, the... The period that we uh, recruited after when we, you know, when it was when Sven, when Sven was leaving and Steve McLaren got the job, and in the midst of all that, um, Scalari allegedly turned the job down, and there was interviews for a number of high-profile managers that quite a long drawn-out process. That that was very demanding, um, but actually the recruitment process when we um, brought in Roy Hodgson. Was also quite a lengthy period, but that that seemed to be done without any, with, a, with just a great deal of secrecy. We were able to do it very, very discreetly, um, and, and 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 you know that was managed far tighter, I would say. Um, so there are there are I think some of the issues that you deal with sometimes they are very, very real left field issues that you know you can be involved in things where just the way that things occur around a game where. There might be perceived mistreatment, or uh, and the relationships might just flare up occasionally. I, again, I don't see that happening at the moment. I've got to say, I think the relationship looks very strong. But there were times back, you know, 20 years ago or 15 years ago, where things would really, really flare up. Or you know, you might be on a week and suddenly hit with, you know, we had situations where, let's be frank, we saw we had Svenjorn Eriksson pictured um, meeting other clubs uh, behind silhouetted windows, front page stories that we had to and contend with and one or two other issues that involved private matters that became front page stories and investigations that, you know, they were equally as challenging if probably they were more challenging than a manager recruitment. Absolutely. And, and, and fighting those flames, for want of a better phrase, must be really difficult. But I'd like to stick on the, the matter of Roy Hodgson's appointment. You were obviously on the FA interview panel for deciding the England manager at that stage. Now, I'm not trying to put you in an awkward place by asking you this, but what what's involved in an interview panel when, you're at, when you are appointing such a high-profile role such as the England manager? I think it depends, again, on the nature of the organisation at a given time. So, you know, I went through, excuse me, sorry, different processes with different chairman and chief executives. So that would really determine how you went about it. Um, you know, when... Roy Hodgson was recruited. David Bernstein was the chairman of the FA. Alex Horn was the uh, general secretary. Trevor Brooking, also Trevor Brooking, I should say, um, was the uh, technical director. And we had one or two other people supporting us on that as well. And we just went through a very, very thorough process that we sat down together consistently on a frequent basis and um, went through a, 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 a process of deciding who it was that we wanted it to be. Um, when uh, Steve McLaren um, finished with England and when Fabio Capello was appointed, that was a process where, again, I think we were really clear that there was a very small number of managers in, in the world that we were even interested in. Uh, and we, we very quickly arrived at Fabio um and again, we managed to get him into the country for a meeting without anybody knowing, which, you know, compared to the previous process, was quite remarkable. So, you know, it just... And then when you're sitting having your interview, I mean, look, I think you've got to be realistic when you're bringing in someone who is uh, an absolute elite manager who's been incredibly successful. The chances are if you're bringing them into a room to come and meet you, there's a very strong chance they know they're going to get the job. In terms of... Want them. In terms of that process, 
obviously I'm not going to go down the route of trying to ask you to name names who were interviewed, but how many managers do you in, did were interviewed at the time of Roy Hodgson? And I don't mean just that in a narrow sense of the question, because obviously, as you've said, depending on the timing of the organisation, the number of people interviewed will fluctuate. But for that, for instance, that appointment with Roy, was it was it maybe Roy was interviewed and another couple of people, or do you widen the net like with ten or twelve interviewees? No, I don't believe so. I, 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 I believe with Roy, we knew that we were going for Roy, so we just met with Roy. And from the outside, obviously, at the time, the media were ramping up, obviously, Harry Redknapp is, is a possible candidate. And, and obviously, when you're doing your work behind the scenes, obviously, trying to recruit Roy, when you see all those stories in the media and you're getting asked for comment on them continuously, day after day, how difficult is that to, to maintain your discreetness in the sense that obviously all these people are coming at you with this one name, whereas you know in the background the reality of it is that you're going for someone else? Well, I think we were really strong as a group. The, the group of people that I just mentioned there, um, in, led by David Bernstein with Sir Trevor and Alex, we were very, very tight as a unit. And we never actually had any doubts about ourselves, I think, and that was the most important thing as a group, yeah. that we felt that we conducted the process in a very um, professional manner. Um, unfortunately, you know, when you are recruiting for an England manager or head coach, if you don't do it within a week or two weeks, there's always going to be some level of uh, disruption to others because people who may be potential candidates, even if the FA say nothing about them, could be disrupted in their club jobs. And that's something that you've got to be conscious of when you're going through that process. And you've also got to be very respectful to the clubs during that process as well. So there's a whole range of dynamics to be involved, uh, or variables involved there. But um, I, I'm, I'm pretty confident from memory, obviously we're going back um, eight, eight years ago and more now, that when Roy was recruited, it was in a very professional manner. Absolutely. And obviously, in terms of Roy, was Harry Redknapp ever spoken to at all? Or was it just a case of Roy was the man and that was just it? Well, I think it's important that, you know, out of courtesy and respect to both men that you've named there, that, you know, ultimately we've always said that we appointed Roy Hodgson and Roy was the man that we wanted to go for at that particular moment. So uh, I think it's best to to, to to stick with that. And that's that's what was said very clearly by our chairman at the time, David Bernstein. Absolutely. And as I say, thank you for answering that question. Um, you move on in, in 2010, you're still working within the organisation, but you're given the title of Club England Managing Director. What did that role involve? Yeah, so that, that was a um, you know move forward. I've done the comms, comms side for a long time. And that was more of, in, in effect, the, the lead executive around the England structure for all things operations. You know, I wasn't the technical lead, so Trevor Brooking was the technical lead across all of the different teams. But the FA at the time, I think it was 24 teams that we ran across, men's, women's, youth teams, um, different you know, different teams like the uh, the blind team and so forth. So we had a responsibility right across the piece there. And my role with um, the operations team, with the commercial team, with the communications team, was to bring it all together alongside the technical team to make sure that we provided all the support services for logistics, operations, budget, um, you know, all of that aspect of it. And, you know, we brought it all together quite closely. We had monthly meetings with all the coaches around the table with the key heads of departments that I referenced there. And we, you know, we, we mapped things out and it was, it was an executive lead position that I held for four years during that time, you know, you're, you're negotiating uh, different uh, contracts as well um, with the staff that are incoming. Um, first, one of the early rounds of women's central contracts as well for the women's players, arranging fixtures with the commercial director, with the, lead operations person you're also looking at the base camps for future tournaments and everything you know there's, there's a lot going on uh, that isn't ever really seen it doesn't really need to be seen externally but it's just trying to bring it all together in terms of tournament mode when you're working for the english fa whether it's in communications or as you've just mentioned there the kind of chief executive of, of, of england behind the scenes at the multiple levels when it gets to tour tournament mode is that just 
is that a time in, in the nature of the role you're doing where you are just working flat out to ensure everything is is right and proper and the best possible preparation in terms of facilities for the players, the management team, um, everything is thought of very thoroughly before you even go to the tournament? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've got to say, um, the people that I worked with during that period, whether it be, you know, the team operations, the team media, security, commercial, um all manner of different people, absolutely fantastic staff to work with, colleagues um, who I worked through many times within hours on the, the press side of things, incredibly professional, diligent people who delivered a unbelievable high standard of work for the for the playing side. And that's always been recognised by the coaches and the players who, who work closely with many of those people. And it's just a real pity that we couldn't achieve the actual success on the pitch um, because, you know, if you look at any of the training grounds we delivered in, you know, whether it be in uh, Portugal 2004, Japan 2002, uh, Belgium in 2000, France 98, Germany 06, all the way through um, to, you know, 2010 in South Africa and 12 in Poland and Ukraine, unbelievable facilities. And there's so much work goes into it. Um, and, and, you know, it's just... It, it is full on, but it's a it's a it's a passionate job. It's a labour of love, so to speak. And everyone behind the scenes, all the support services staff, the medical staff, everyone is absolutely desperate for the team to succeed. And you know, you look back on that now, and the the, the biggest disappointment in all of that is that on three occasions we got to quarterfinals, we lost narrowly to Brazil in 2002, and we lost two on penalty shootouts to Portugal. When you know you win one of those penalty shootouts, and who knows what, particularly in 2004, when that tournament really opened up, uh, and, and we'd be looking back very differently on that team from that period. Absolutely, as you say, and in terms of obviously going from from tournament modes and being involved, as you've talked about, in the recruitment of managers and, and many things behind the scenes with England, you obviously worked with the FA for for, for a long, long time. In the end, why did you decide to move on from that role? I think I've been there long enough, to be honest with you. I was just ready for doing something different. It's a very demanding environment to work in. And, you know, we'd had in 2013, we'd had uh, our 150th anniversary, which again, I was the overall executive lead for. There was a lot of planning going on for the Brazil World Cup. We'd also had a... um, team go out to Brazil as well to open the Maracanã Stadium uh, over in Rio. Uh, We had lots of other work going on that's the normal wider work of the organisation that gets um, often left behind in the bigger bigger space. But we had a really busy uh, 2013 and 14. And I kind of knew for a couple of tournaments I'd been thinking this would be my last tournament. And you know, I, was, I just knew it for 2014. I'm very disappointed, obviously, the fact that the team um, came out of the tournament so early in 2014. Um, so glow to everybody, but I just knew myself I, I needed to do something different. I was ready for a change. And so uh, I spoke with um, the chief executive and the chairman, who was then Greg Dyke, uh, and agreed that I would be leaving the organisation at the end of that year. And it was the right thing to do. It's an organisation that I'll always love. I'm very proud to have represented and worked for, uh, and I'm very proud and privileged to have worked with the England team, the managers, and so many wonderful staff. Uh, but, yeah, it was a time to move on. Since leaving the FA, obviously you've been involved in football with different capacities at different um, levels, whether that be club level or different regional levels within the game as well. And without getting into the specifics of any of those clubs in particular, in terms of the business side of football, when it comes to recruitment of managers and recruitment of players through transfers, what goes on behind the scenes that, that us as fans aren't aware of? Well, there's a lot. I mean, look, I've, I've been fortunate. I work with a number of different clubs in, in, in various capacities. And so, you know, I work with Nottingham Forest um, as an advisor to the owner briefly for a period of about six months. That involved a transfer window where the club was under a transfer embargo. Uh, and we, we had to sell a player uh, right towards the end of the deadline. I'd only been involved with the club for about two weeks, but that was the only way that we could guarantee that we'd be out of the embargo for the next window. Um, and then you had to bring players in 
on loan, because that's all we're allowed to do at that particular moment um, during the course of the deadline day. So, you know, you, you, it's pretty frantic. Um, in other in other environments, there's a lot of planning goes on. There's a huge amount of work in identifying potential targets. Then you're relying on conversations going your way and negotiations going your way. Um, you know, but beyond that, I also went to work with the Welsh national setup for two years. Sorry, for a year leading into Euro 2016, uh, where I was really uh, thankful to the chief executive Jonathan Ford to invite me to work with their, their staff uh, as part of the tournament planning uh, across the whole project. And I have to say that's probably my favourite piece of work uh, that I've ever been involved in, um, certainly as a consultant, where, you know, we were, a, we were, you know, we mapped everything out. And then even though I wasn't directly working around the team, it was amazing to watch watch the team progress to the semi-final of the tournament and you know, perform so well in France. So, that was a great piece of work to be involved in. In terms of the business side of football, obviously, at club level, when it comes to um, generating sponsorship and and getting companies to the table to help back the club, have you been involved in any of that sort of thing in recent years? Yeah, I have in different ways, and it's you know I think you're relying there on you know, you've got to work with people who are highly skilled in the commercial departments, market departments, and you're using. Often agencies are used third-party agencies to who are specialists in acquiring commercial relationships, partnerships, I should say. But also, you have to, you know, you should be drawing on your own network and understanding of the market as well. And you know, you've got to know the value of of, of what you what you're offering, what your assets are worth. Uh, and then, you know, I think importantly, once you've reached an agreement with a commercial partner, you actually genuinely engage with them as a partner. Not just as uh, someone who's offered some money up front as a sponsor, you need to make sure that that relationship is maintained because that's how you'll maximise the asset. And I think increasingly across sport, you know, we're seeing some incredible, um, incredible relationships now in that regard. So, yeah, that's a, a hugely important part of uh, of all sport, I guess. In terms of communication and press conferences, we talked about those earlier. What are the biggest challenges you found as a communications manager for such a big organisation and also managing um, communications as an advisor at multiple clubs? I think the, the great thing when you're out there as an advisor is I've worked with, with a number of high-profile clients is that you can, you know, map, you know, sitting down and deciding on the strategy that you're going you're gonna to work with your client and, you know, trying to put a real clear plan together in place and then when you actually execute that plan and it's successful, um, you know, without going into any confidential matters, I've been fortunate where there's been a number of those uh, cases in, in, in recent years when I was leading my own consultancy. And it's that's a really um, pleasurable experience to uh, see that work come to fruition. But it's about it's about understanding the, um, the audience, uh, what the target audience is, what the purpose of your role is, who you're trying to reach, who you're trying to speak to. You're not necessarily just speaking to the person who's interviewing you. You're looking at what's behind that and what your goal is. And it, you know, is it to try and acquire ownership of a football club? Is it to try and launch something commercially? You know, there's a whole range of different things, and you've got to try and choose the right mediums to 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 achieve that purpose. Obviously, over the last. 25 or so years in football things have changed we talked about that towards the start of the interview where obviously social media is now a big thing um constant um wall-to-wall day-to-day news is a big thing and as work as a person like yourself working in communications and advisory roles how what how much of a difference has that been from your perspective for the last 25 years in terms of your day-to-day dealings with with, with clients or clubs or or organizations like the fa I think important. It's important to say that look, social media has, has been a massive game changer over the past decade and more. And you know, I hear a, lot, a number of people talk about, well, I'm not interested, and in, you know, the players shouldn't use it, and uh, it, it, it can be very damaging. Undoubtedly, we've seen real experiences of it being uh, very damaging to people. And the, you know, I think there has to be clear. Uh, governance of those platforms, but used positively, it's also something that can be a fantastic vehicle 
for elite athletes to have direct communication with supporters. So that's that's got to be something that's a real positive. Then commercially, you know, you look at someone like Cristiano Ronaldo, and I believe, you know, the revenue he's bringing out, the revenue he's bringing in from Instagram, is, is, is his biggest revenue generator, which is unbelievable compared to over 10, 15 years ago. So social media can be harnessed and used very creatively commercially. So there's a massive, massive plus there. But what we have to really, really improve on is the level of abuse that people receive now, Absolutely. which can be very damaging. And it's a, you know, we're seeing increasing um, manners of, we see increasing ways in which people are being criticised, abused, you know, on social media platforms, and that has to be better policed because we can't, you know, it's it's it's, it's obviously something that's just unacceptable. In terms of the state of play in in football now, and primarily English football, because obviously that's where where you've worked for the majority of your career. What's your opinions on the state of play now for not just the English national team, but the Premier League going forward too? Well, I think look, we're very fortunate that we've had the Premier League in England for since 1992-93 season. And I think the Premier League is an unbelievable um, asset for English football as a, you know, the quality of football that we see now, I think, is absolutely outstanding. The quality of Liverpool and Manchester City at the moment is breathtaking at times. The brand of the Premier League is one of the most positive brands that the, the, the that the UK has globally. The revenue it generates is phenomenal. The quality of the, the stadiums that we see are absolutely outstanding. So there's a huge, huge number of plus points there. You've also seen the elite play performance plan, you know, which has seen the development of players through the clubs, and that's bearing fruit for the development teams of the England national team. You've got the English national team DNA that's been in play now for um, seven or eight years, which has seen the England youth teams go on and win trophies and better performance by the men's and women's national teams as well. And the investment in the women's game is phenomenal too. And that's seen continued growth and it's something that, you know, we have to see continuing. So I think there's a so much positive with regards to where we are with the English game at the moment. And also, you look at the English Football League as well, and there's so many, you know, the, the championship is an incredibly competitive league. I think it's one of the, regards one of the top leagues in, 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 in Europe, insofar as audience. Uh, and, you know, look at the size of some of the clubs in the championship as well. And that is a, a, a league that is probably unique to any other. So we should, we've got a lot to be proud about in England this mo- at this moment. But I'm also someone who watches a lot of, um, league football in other countries as well. You know, I follow my football in Scotland very, very closely. Always have done, and I think it's great to see an emergence of a, so many good young players coming out of Scotland again. It's brilliant to see Rangers and Celtic doing so well in Europe this season, and um, which hopefully we'll see the coefficient improve uh, for Scottish football. Uh, you know, it's brilliant to see um, Wales once again qualifying. For, for, for a major finals tournament uh, and you know hopefully we can see Scotland and Northern Ireland um, competing I love watching all of the the European leagues as well you know the quality of football that's available to us now is, is is of a very very high standard in my opinion you mentioned obviously Scottish football and obviously I'm based in Scotland and it's, I, I, I love the fact you've said you follow our game. I think it's something that gets a lot of criticism from certain elements, not just in England, but across the kind of board. And you're right, I think our teams are doing well in Europe this year, and that can only be a good thing, thing for the coefficient going forward. I'm interested to ask your view on this, Adrian. Do you think Scotland's an untapped market for many English clubs? I think it's something that people will be increasingly focusing on and, 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 and are doing and should be doing. Because when you see... Players uh, like John McGinn, like Andrew Robertson, uh, like Scott McTomney, uh, you know, that's off the top of my head, who, you know, Kieran Tierney, you know, coming through, um, there there are a number of very good players playing in Scotland at the moment. I could go on, you know, and I I watch a lot of games on on TV. I I go up to Scotland occasionally to watch watch games, and I'm not just talking about just players in the... um, 
the Premier League as well in Scotland. I think you know it's important to you know look at the leagues below that, and you know there's there's some good players playing in the in the leagues below, and you've still got clubs like Dundee United that are producing players at the moment. But you know, you know I'm expecting them to be in the Premier League next year, but um, at the moment they're playing in league below that. But you know, there's some there's some there's some good teams in there, and I think the standards improving. And I'd like I really would like to see a Scotland team. Look, I grew up in a generation where Scotland automatically qualified for World Cups, whether it be uh, you know, seventy four, seventy eight, all the way through to um ninety as an automatic qualifier and I think it's good for, for British football if Scot if Scotland are in those tournaments. In terms of Scotland, obviously your your interest and in, in passion for Scottish footballs came through for me there. You've you've ringed off players that have came from Scotland and, and for me I just as I say I find it absolutely refreshing when, when someone enjoys our game because it's a game that I'm very proud of. It doesn't have have maybe the finances of the Premier League and I say maybe, of course it doesn't. Um but we do have quality and I'm glad that that, that, that you agree in that. One thing I'm interested to ask you about is you are very highly linked with the chief executive role at the Scottish Football Association. Were you ever interested in that role? Were you ever approached for that role? Or was that something that was more media-focused? Um, well, look, I don't want to go into the specifics of it, but um, you know, I think it's a, the, the, the Scottish um, football scene is one that's of genuine interest to me and it's something that I do enjoy. So, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm conscious that there are people in positions there at this moment in time and it'd be wrong for me to talk about in too much detail, but yeah, I think what I've already said to you there is that hopefully it's come across that you know I'm an admirer of um, the Scottish game. I think you know, you know I went I went to, I think it was over Easter last year. I went to watch a game in the SPFL as well, and you know you, you, you bump into people, you're talking to, and I, I just enjoy going to games up there. You know, it's whether you know everyone thinks about it's about going to Ibrox or to Parkhead, which I, I absolutely obviously enjoy going to those grounds. And the atmosphere at those grounds are unbelievable, but it's great to go to other grounds as well. And there's, you know, I've encountered a lot of very, very good people um, over my career in football who who work out of Scotland and, you know, become good friends or good contacts of mine. And I, and I just follow it very closely. The last question I've got for you, Adrian, and I know I'm kind of putting you on the spot with this, but you've watched football for, for many years and I'm interested to ask you if you could name obviously your, your best 11 players from, from your lifetime and it doesn't necessarily have to be the best 11 players just the, 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 the 11 that you've enjoyed watching wow <laughs> you're putting me on the spot there um, what I would say I love players like uh, Michelle Pottini Johan Cruyff and Michael Laudrup when you know so they, they're, they're players that uh, I love watching Putting these players into a team shape is very difficult off the off the top of your head. Um, I think I'd, I'd have to find room for Graham Souness in there, who's possibly my favourite ever British player. Um, obviously, I saw him briefly as a very young young boy at Middlesbrough, but primarily at Liverpool, and then when he went on to Sampdoria and to, to Rangers. Uh, but I thought he was just an unbelievable leader uh, and did well in big games. Absolutely. Uh, so from a British point of view, he was a, he was such a top player for me. Uh, I think I find it very difficult to give you a one two eleven. To, to to be honest with you though, because there's just so many, you know, great players. I mean, where do you start with Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo? And then you look back and you think about players like I love Ronaldinho personally. Oh, I thought he was a wonderful player. Um, you know, and some of the great defenders that we've seen over the years. And that's with, you know you suddenly think about people like Frank Reichard, who I thought was an amazing player, Lauter Mateus, uh, you know some of the unbelievable goalkeepers. Whether you start with some of the great English keepers like Peter Shilton and Ray Clements, um, or then you go into people like Dino Zoff or Zep Meyer, who I grew up with, and then you know probably Gian Luigi Buffon, who would be probably my favourite all-time goalkeeper when he was at his very peak. Um, and then you can look at the German team of the last decade or so. I love Thomas Muller, absolutely in his pomp. Um, and at the moment, you know, you've got to say someone like Lewandowski, pound for pound, is one of the best strikers that we've seen for the last decade. But Didier Drogba was an unbelievable striker too. Absolutely. And I must say, in terms of a 1 to 11, you've rhymed off so many players there, I can understand why it's hard to put them into an 11. If you were to say then your maybe top five players you've seen in the Premier League era from 92 onwards, 
who would you say would be your maybe top five Premier League players you've watched? Well, I think you've got to look at people like you know, Steve, Steve, someone like Steven Gerrard would have to go in there. Yep. Um, just for the impact that he had with the Liverpool team that he played with. Absolutely. Um, massive, massive fan of Steven Gerrard. Uh, you know, I think the impact that Eric Cantona made at Manchester United when he first went there and for a two or three or four year period that he was there was was fantastic too. Um, it's, it's difficult. I think there's so many. You know, so, there's just so many great players, and it's very difficult to give you that answer off the cuff. But you know, I, I, you know, Ryan Giggs for the the length of career that he had playing for Manchester United in the Premier League, Alan Shearer for for me as a goal scorer, um, an absolutely sensational goal scorer, great you know target man, great player, um, big occasion player. Roy Keane as a leader, Paul Scholes as a passer, Frank Lampard as a box-to-box goal-scoring machine, John Terry, Ashley Cole, wonderful left-back, absolutely fantastic left-back. You know, uh, Rio Ferdinand, who at times one of the best centre-backs in the world. You can go on and on. Absolutely, and I think you're right in terms of the fact that we've been blessed over the last... 20 to 30 years of, of seeing so many wonderful players and obviously there was wonderful players through every generation but but I, I totally echo what you're saying there obviously the likes of Gerrard, Cantona even bringing it up to the modern day where we are now Virgil van Dijk he's just one of the best centre halves I've ever seen Oh Van Van, van I mean, and I was fortunate I saw Van Dijk playing for Celtic um, I saw him playing a game for Celtic against uh, Juventus uh, at Celtic Park probably about I'm guessing about eight years ago, something like that. And, you know, he was a phenomenal player for Celtic. Absolutely. And what he is now, yeah, he's undoubtedly one of the greatest defenders that I think we've seen in a generation. In terms of, last question for you, Eugene, in terms of England, obviously, you're a massive English national team fan, you're a follower, you work for the organisation too. Going into the Euros this summer, what are your, what are your thoughts and feelings for the English national team? I think in Gareth Southgate they've got the perfect man for the job. I think he's absolutely suitably equipped across all areas of it. He understands the players. I think he's got a great relationship with the players. He knows how to deal with the media. Um, and he's also an absolutely fantastic person as well. We've got a really good squad, good group of players. I think a lot of it does depend on the injury levels and fitness levels because we've had some worrying injuries of late so you really need to see Harry Kane back and fully fit you know you want Marcus Rashford to be back and fully fit for certain uh, I think it's a real real shame if anyone's going to miss out with injury I'm sorry that Tom Heaton's missing the tournament because I think he's a very good goalkeeper uh, and obviously the, the advantage that having home games at Wembley um, should provide England an advantage so you know the, 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 the hope and aspiration will be that they can go better than they did in the World Cup in 2018, but that's easy said and done. Um, you know, there's, there's some other really good nations coming this tournament. You look at the squad that the French have, and I think the French, you know, coming into the tournament as, as world champions, you know, I think on paper are favourites in my opinion. I don't think England are too far behind them insofar as uh, the favourites. But I think Holland have proved to come again. Um, it will be very interesting to see how Spain uh, Spain perform after the managerial change. And then I, th- I get a sense that Germany are just clicking back in again with some of the players that are emerging there. Um, Italy have done incredibly well under uh, Roberto Mancini. And, and Portugal are always a, a strong team at tournaments and Belgium likewise will be a threat. So I think it's wide open. Absolutely, and I would agree with that. I think it's going to be a really exciting tournament to watch. And as you've said, with some games being played in home soil, I think England are in with a real chance. And I'd just like to say, Adrian, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and thank you very much for your time. No, it's my pleasure, Calvin. Thank you very much. So we'll dive down to the ocean, and we'll make our home in a deep sea cave, and our shells will all be open. They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song We'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make her home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song
Thanks for listening to another episode of the Football CFB podcast with me, Callum McFadden. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at football underscore CFB and please subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or through Anchor FM um, where I always post my links to the podcasts anyway. Um, I hope you enjoyed this podcast and I cannot wait to share my next one with you. Please join me again um, very soon when I'll have another Football CFB with. But until next time, take care.